This podcast is brought to you by Shift Management Supervisory Leadership Certificate Course, where online learning and live web coaching bring out the very best in frontline and middle managers. Move from operations to management thinking and develop the skills for leadership, reaching your company goals at the same time. Check out our Supervisory Leadership Certificate Course on the shiftworkplace.com website today. Hello, Culture and Leadership Connections podcast listeners. I'm really glad that you could join me today with my fabulous guest, Shana Rattler, who is a business and life mentor and also a minister and a coach. As a coach, consultant, and speaker since 2007, Shana Rattler has helped celebrities, influencers, military officers, political dignitaries, pastors, corporate executives, and seasoned entrepreneurs achieve personal growth and organizational excellence. That's quite the list. She and her businesses have received multiple awards. She has published three books, and the books are Hire, Yes Magnet, and Secrets to Landing Corporate Sponsorships. I think I need to read all three of them. And she's been featured in over 250 media outlets. Shana is the host of the Faith First Leadership Podcast, and she's very passionate about helping others to develop a deeper understanding of God and the identity they have in Him. Her mission is to help leaders shift from burned out to where God needs them next to succeed in business and life. Welcome, Shana. Thank you so much for having me, Marie. I'm so glad that you could be part of the podcast. Shana and I discovered each other online. I'm not really sure exactly how, but I think it was through podcasts. Uh-huh. And uh, I was very impressed with the things that Shana has done. And in the Culture and Leadership Connections podcast, people often talk about religion, but it's rare that they talk about religion first. Usually it comes into the interview at some point where they talk about their faith, their spirituality, or that their desire to have one if they don't have one, or their struggles, but it doesn't usually happen straight from the get-go. So mm-hmm. you and one other guest are the first two, I would say, who have had the courage to say, this is where I'm coming from. I'm coming from a faith-first perspective. And I'm really excited to dive into that with you. Yes. So, Shana, tell the audience a little bit about who you are, what you do, sort of from a more personal standpoint. Absolutely. So, um, I live here in Dallas, Texas, and I have been an entrepreneur since 2007. When I first started off in 2007, I actually owned a healthcare staffing agency. And what ended up happening was by the age of like 28 years old, and I don't say anything of this to brag, but to give perspective of where I'm going in the journey. But by the time I was 28, I had a 3,000 square foot house in a gated community, an expensive car, trips, bags, you know, the whole nine yards. And people were coming to me like, what are you doing? You know, and when they found out that I was running a business, people were asking me like, well, how do you start a business? And how do you grow a business? And I quickly realized that not only did I really have a knack for being able to teach others what I had accomplished, I really felt like it was a calling of mine as well to really help people's dreams become reality. So since 2007, I have been doing some form of business coaching and leadership development. And then in 2018, I had my own shifting experience where everything was really starting to fall apart around me. Everything I touched turned to dirt. My business was no longer successful. My opportunities and relationships were drying up. And the long and the short of that was that 
God was calling me to ministry. And he said, all of these skills and gifts and talents that you've used to build the marketplace, I really want you to take a lot of those same skill sets and, you know, help me build the kingdom. And so since 2018, I have been teaching people that when you put your faith first, everything else falls into place, you know, whether that is something in your personal life or whether that is something in your professional life. If you figure out how to blend those worlds together, but more importantly, really recognize that one should come before the other and then everything else takes care of itself. And so since 2018, I have been working with high performing leaders who have found themselves burned out to say that shift came as a form of disruption to get you to see that you're not on the path that is designed for you, whether that's a physical place that they've been pursuing like a job or something like their relationships or their mindset. And that's what I've been doing, uh, Marie, since 2018 is helping people figure out how do they shift successfully when some form of disruption like burnout has come into their lives. Hmm, That's great. I'm sure it really helps people to get focused. Oh, absolutely. Especially if you're focused on the right things. Right. I think that oftentimes our minds immediately go to what are we going to do? But I don't think that there's any mistake that we're called human beings and not human doings. And so I believe that if we recognize that our shifting season is going to be more about who we're going to become and then focus on those areas and develop becoming a better version of ourselves, that we're in a better position to be able to identify and focus on what to do next. Yeah, because really all the wealth and capacity that we have comes from our internal selves. Yeah. And so if one thing falls apart on the outside or changes, we always have those gems within us that we can use to move to whatever else we need to do. But if we aren't focused on that, all we see is the external piece falling apart. Yeah. I did a podcast interview this morning and I said, we can only do to the capacity of who we are. I think we discount that being piece because as human beings, we're so focused on doing and we think that that's the crux of everything, but we can only do to the capacity of what we are. Mm -hmm. That's lovely. That's very quotable. I want to ask you a little bit before I dive into some of the other questions. Have you always had a Christian faith or have you been exposed to other faiths or have you had a time when you were not Christian or not engaged with Christianity? Absolutely. Um, So Christianity has always been my personal faith and belief, but I've always studied others at at least a base level, if only for the sake of understanding and for conversation. Now, growing up, I was not in a let's go to church household. As a matter of fact, when I was growing up, my grandmother would do my hair and send me down the street with a dime for the offering to this AME church that was at the corner. But my parents did not go to church. I was not brought up in church. I tell people all the time that when I was being called to ministry, I actually felt like I was not qualified because I did grow up in Sunday school, so I didn't feel like I knew all the stories, right? So in fourth grade, what came to be a really good friend of mine, their family moved to town in fourth grade, and they were devout Christians. And I went to church with them a lot. And I believe that my real exposure to Christ and really seeing what godly living in a household looks like, I contribute largely to that family. So I've always been under the Christian belief, but it wasn't until I got to be about 21 or 22 that I was even baptized. And it wasn't until my mid thirties that I was really serious about trying to let my day-to-day life reflect my beliefs. I've always been a Christian, but I've always been intentional about exposing myself to other faiths because I want to be able to understand other people. And you and I had a conversation through email a couple of weeks ago where I said, I pray that we get to the point where we focus more on the principles and less about our preference. 
if you see religion as just being all the chapters of one book, everybody comes to God anyway. The point is really to engage with people and to understand their experience. And when you do that, influence happens as it is intended to rather than being forced. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that was interesting to me about what you just said was just this idea that uh, you were what, about age eight, you said, when you went with this friend to church and that sort of thing? Fourth They're grade. So fourth grade. it's been a long time since I've even had a fourth grader. So I don't know how old you are. It's like nine, grade. eight, nine. That framework is really important for children. I don't know if this exists anywhere, but I'm piecing information together over the years with my own children, with teaching, with running a whole bunch of different groups and discussions and classes and whatnot. But I know that at age four, children start to ask a lot of questions about God, no matter what background they come from and what they've been exposed to. And between the ages eight and 10, they frequently have a faith experience that marks them for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. And so I think that those are some developmental milestones. There's more, of course, in the teen years, but I think that that's important. And oftentimes people will say that in their family, you know, if they didn't grow up with prayer, that they find it really difficult to do it as an adult. So there's certain routines that you learn as a child, but it doesn't mean that if you missed out, that you can't pick them up later. Absolutely. Because I can tell you that my habits were not formed until my mid-30s and they weren't perfected until within the last two years, if I'm just being completely honest. And we keep growing. Until we die, our brain cells keep reproducing. So we thought they were just dying. Some of them are, but they're also still growing. So we can always learn. (laughs) Okay, so um, I just wanted to ask you if you can share a couple of incidents from your childhood that you think made you into the person you are today. Absolutely. So I kind of have been an entrepreneur all of my life. And if we were on video, I would probably hold up this picture that I have of me when I'm probably five or six years old and I'm having a yard sale. And there's so much crap on this table that nobody was ever going to buy and they probably were not going to buy it. But my dad always taught me to work for it. If you want it, work for it. So if there was something that I wanted, I would sell the clothes off my back if it meant getting what I wanted. I can remember wanting a 10-speed bike that I saw. It was light teal green. It was in Kmart, and I wanted that bike, and my dad told me that he would not buy it, but he would allow me to put it on layaway and work for it. And so I would do little different things to, really, I was hustling because I would, my dad, he, would, he knew what I was doing, but he wanted to help me because he saw, you know, the work that I was putting into it. I would come to him with two fives and be like, dad, I'll give you two fives for your 20. Like that, that's a good exchange because I'm giving you two and you're just giving me one in exchange. <laughs> you know? so, so I think if you want it, work for it mentality was um, instilled into me from a very young age. I was raised by my father. My parents separated when I was about five years old and my dad got custody and my mother paid child support. You don't usually hear of that, let alone very seldom this day and age do you hear of a young black male in his late 20s, early 30s as a single father raising a girl, like unless they've been widowed or something. But by choice and being intentional, you don't see that. So I think that that was one of the things that my father instilled into me that began my work ethic. And I definitely believe that those exposures are probably why I'm an entrepreneur and unhirable at this point in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, your father must be a very special man. Right. He's very, very special. 
I'm his only child and he's my only daddy. And it's really been just the two of us. Now, don't get me wrong. My mother is in the picture and we have a great relationship. She's getting on an airplane and coming to Dallas tomorrow to see me. So I don't say any of that to take away from my mother. But the fact of the matter is, is that my father was the custodial parent and I lived in his home. So we have more closeness just because of proximity, not because that I devalue the relationship with my mother. But yes, my daddy is a very, very special breed of a man. And I contribute a lot of who I am today to him and being in my life. Mm-hmm. As your primary caregiver. Yeah. Yeah, which is wonderful. So both learning to work for things and having an entrepreneurial bent and then having a very nurturing and supportive father, those are definitely foundational when you think about it. Right. So um, everybody's born into a whole bunch of groups. Yeah. We're born into a time and a place and a region, into a race, into a culture or multiple cultures. We're born into a, a faith context. Even if we don't adhere to it, it's there, you know, that has influences the way people think. So those groups that you were born into, what would you say has most influenced you in the sense of yourself culturally and as a leader? That's a great question. And so when I give you a little of the background, you know, my answer may be surprising, but I'm biracial. My mother is white. My father is black. And I grew up in a predominantly white town. I grew up in a agricultural town in central Illinois, 20,000 people that was 8% minority. And I don't mean black. I mean, 8% anything other than white. So in my family, I'm not your typical mixed chick. And what do I mean when I say that? I didn't have the best of both worlds in the fact that I had a whole white side of the family and a whole black side of the family. On the white side, I had my mother and my grandmother, and I knew no one else, primarily because they were racist. And, um, and my father did his darndest to protect me from that lifestyle. And so... I consider myself to have been raised black in my household, but I very much grew up in a white environment. Most of my friends were white, but I would say that the black side of my culture has influenced me the most as a leader. And here's why, because black people know how to adapt. And a little fact that a lot of people don't know is that when the IQ test was originally created, it was created off of adaptability. And black people were outscoring other races by droves because who else knows how to adapt other than people who have grown up extremely poor and in slavery and, you know, all the different things that we could go down a bunch of different rabbit holes. And as it turns out, they didn't necessarily want us to be the ones that were outscoring. And so they changed the IQ test to look more like it looks today. So I would say that me growing up in a black family and spending a lot of time with my older black grandmother who did not have education but had a ton of life experiences and wisdom really taught me how to adapt. And I think that's an important character trait to have as a leader because the people whom you lead are usually going to be very varied in comparison to who you are. And I think any effective leader has to be able to adapt to the times and the changes, but more specifically to the cultures of those that you lead. And so I think being deeply entrenched in the Black culture has really taught me how to be a great adapter as a leader. That's such an insightful answer and so articulate too. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I really agree with you. How can you be anything but adaptable after slavery? Right. Even staying alive, getting over from those horrific slave boats. Anybody that survived slavery and consistent undermining and the poor nutrition and the beans and everything and the fear and then to move through life in a situation where the everything around you is hostile. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and so adaptability is what you have to learn. Otherwise, you don't survive. You emotionally fall apart. Physically, you don't make it. So yeah, I I think that that's a really great way of looking at it. And I'm sure that that's given you a sense of being able to sort of move seamlessly between cultures gracefully so people don't notice it really because you're so good at it. Yeah. I tell people that I'm a chameleon. Like I really can communicate well to anyone, whether it's at the black tie event or, you know, the backstreet barbecue in the hood, like you really can take me anywhere (laughs) and I can get along with people and, and people like me. And I think it's because you know, I'm half black and I'm half white and my family was all black and my friends were all white and I was always spending the night at their houses. You know, the family that I told you about, the Crenshaws, that moved to town when I was in the fourth grade as a white family. And I jokingly said this on Facebook to the mother the other day. I said, you guys took me so many places as a child that I'm sure they probably thought you guys had adopted a black daughter. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) I do. I do. (laughs) So, um, from the groups that you chose to belong to, because you grow up and you then you choose to belong to other groups, what aspects of those cultures would you say you've adopted into your leadership style? Since becoming an entrepreneur in 2007, I've always been in some type of group coaching program or mastermind. And even when I'm not at the moment being in one of those formal groups, my circle has become made up largely of the people that I have met in those groups. And in being in those masterminds and becoming friends with other people who are dedicated to personal and professional development, they really have given me the mindset to think bigger and to have the guts to go after that bigger. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that I have definitely adopted that into my leadership style and even my own ambitions. Like I'm never done. Somebody told me a couple of years ago, I have a what's next spirit. Mm. What's next spirit? That's great. Yeah. And I'm always looking for what's next. Um, And sometimes it's leveraging and going deeper. And sometimes it's what's next and new. So I think that I can probably contribute that a lot to being in those masterminds and having friends that are like, that sounds good, but I don't even think that sounds big enough, you know, and then having the guts to go after it because it's one thing to want something and visualize it. And it's another thing entirely to have the guts and the courage to take the steps to move your feet and actually go after what it is that you say you want to have. And then to get through the obstacles. And to, and to keep going when it gets hard, right? Mm-hmm. Like, One of my favorite sayings is keep going even when you don't feel like it. Because trust me, there are so many days that I could just easily go back to being a therapist and make nice six figures with insurance and predictability and not have to go through all the things that we have to do, you know, as an entrepreneur. But I also believe that for me personally, that those are golden handcuffs and a part of me would die every day because that was not the path that was designed for me. The work that I'm doing now, I'm in my jam for sure. Yeah, you're creative and you have a strong leadership capacity that could probably not fit into someone else's idea. Yeah. So that's a good way of explaining that. Psychology usually talks about personality as having two parts. So that one part is your temperament that you're born with. And that probably has a lot to do with you saying that people like you and that you're friendly, you're gregarious, you know how to start conversations with people. The other part uh, would be your personality, what you've learned as you overcame obstacles over time that you added on to what you were born with. So what would you say is your temperament and what would you say would be personality for you? I'm real laid back and I'm hilarious. Like if I can just toot my own horn for a minute, I'm funny. And so (laughs) 
<laughs> you, you know, like my humor, I think that it really affects the way that I see the world. And, you know, a lot of people may say, oh, if you're always cracking jokes, it's because you don't take things seriously. I take things very seriously. I just don't believe that I have to be serious while I do it. So it doesn't matter if I'm on stage speaking to a group of executives. It doesn't matter if I am at a ministry event and I'm delivering a spiritual message or if I'm just on the phone with my friends. I don't take what I'm doing that seriously. I'm always saying something funny and I'm always heckling somebody, you know, and it's not like a coping mechanism type of way, but it's just how I rule my roost, if you will. We maybe have that in common. I remember four careers ago when I was a teacher, I was working with a group of junior high students and one of them said, like you're really serious about what we're doing, but you're so fun about it. I thought, oh, good. I said, that's the best compliment I've ever had. Absolutely. When I was a therapist, I took your healing from your hip fracture very seriously, but I had you busting up laughing while we were exercising. You know, yeah. as a leadership person, I take your organizational growth very seriously, but we're going to have some fun in this workshop. You're spending a whole bunch of time doing it, so you may as well have some fun at the same time. Right. <laughs> That'd be your temperament. What about personality? What have you adapted onto it? Um, personality. So on the DISC assessment, I'm almost 100% D. So for those of you that may not be familiar with that, it's a personality assessment that really helps you understand how you like to receive information and give information and obviously relate to those that aren't like you. And the D is very direct. The D doesn't like a lot of detail. They don't spend a lot of time getting an analysis paralysis. I'm the opposite of an accountant. Let's just put it that way. A D is on the complete opposite end of an accountant that loves to get stuck in the numbers and the process. And I'm like, just tell me the outcome and let's go with it. You know, I'm not the person that when you call me on the phone for a sales call, I don't need the hook questions. I don't need you to set it up. Just tell me the features and benefits and how much it costs. That's really all I need. So <laughs> that's the way that my personality is personally and professionally. Mm -hmm. But again, that's part of your temperament. I would say I started out as a pretty strong extrovert uh, mm -hmm. and I didn't think too much about my actions and how they oh, affected yeah. other people. But as I grew up, I realized that I was hurting people's feelings and I didn't want to do that. That was certainly not my intention. And I really had to learn to be tactful. Tact yeah. was not something that came naturally to me. And in my family, people are not tactful. Like, they're just not. They just say what comes straight from the hip, whatever comes to mind. And in fact, it was often in my growing up when I was in my, with my original family right, that I grew up in, it was lots of criticism. And so I would say that I, I learned to not criticize, to compliment, and I learned to be tactful, and I learned to suspend judgment. I didn't have any of those qualities. I didn't grow up with them. I had to learn them. Was there something you had to learn? Marie, listen, I had that exact conversation two and a half weeks ago and used the exact same language that you just used. I said what came to my mind. There was not much filter before it came out of my mouth. I was not tactful. I didn't care how it made you feel. Um, I wasn't always necessarily intentionally trying to hurt you, but if it did, I just chopped it up as the truth and sometimes the truth hurts. And then obviously as I grew older and matured, I was like, but you should care how it makes people feel. You should be intentional, you know, about your delivery. So I absolutely just had that exact conversation and used the exact same language just a couple of weeks ago. Hmm. So you did the same thing I did then. Absolutely. You're my sister from another mister. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to ask you about a time when you became aware that your understanding of the world was specific to your culture. Now, everybody's culture, I just want to do a little bit of caveat to that because culture is not one homogenous block. Yeah. 
there's the age group that you're born into. There's the town or the city you're born into. Is There's the street, your neighbors, there's a culture right there. There's the family culture. There's just so many cultures, the norms that any group establishes as they interact with each other. But at some point, you realize that what you're doing is not working for somebody else because it's not normal for them. Do you have an experience like that? Listeners, what's coming out of my mouth is not deep and philosophical. <laughs> <laughs> So there was something on the internet a couple of years ago about whether or not you should wash your meat before cooking it. And someone I knew on my timeline had posted it. And so people were going back and forth. And then I started to have a lot of online and offline conversations. And what I found was, is that it seemed like overwhelmingly so. Now there were some outliers, but overwhelmingly so the black people were like, of course you wash your meat. And the other races were like, no, you just cook it at a high enough temperature. And we were like, I don't care how high of a temperature it is, you wash your meat before you season and cook it. And they're like, but then you wash it and the, and the germs get in, the, in your sink and you're like, and then you clean it with bleach. So it was a crazy moment. It sounds probably silly to use that as the example, but it was just one of those things like, huh, something as simple as do you wash your meat before you cook it is like, oh, this is kind of how we do things around here. And maybe we're the only people who think that's what you're supposed to do. But I, I found it fascinating. No, I don't think that's a simple example at all. I think that that's exactly the kind of thing that happens. And if people have no experiences like that, they must have a very sheltered life. Because, right. you know, you're going to run up against something that just surprises you. And it's not just, for example, there's this, always these colorblind things, you know, where people go, yeah. this is green. Another person goes, no, it's not. It's blue. That's difference of perception. Yeah. But actually ways of doing things often yeah. come through small daily actions like that. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure they do. I remember a friend of ours who moved to New Orleans and he said, I just can't get used to how people talk about barbecue around here. Yeah. And I said, yeah, what's barbecue? And he goes, well, you like dig these crawdads out of the ground and then you boil them and that's supposed to be a barbecue. And like here, like he said, I'm used to like grilling meat on an outside flame. And to me, that's right. a barbecue. And he said, I just right. like, he, gets to, he goes, he just irritates me every time I smell it cooking. I think that is not a barbecue. And I said, well, isn't barbecue to you, but it is to them. Like they grew up with their barbecue and you grew up with your barbecue. Yep. Same here. You know, I lived in Memphis, Tennessee for 17 years, which is a major capital for barbecue. You know, they have this big barbecue festival every year. And now I moved to Texas and they think their barbecue is barbecue. And I'm like, that's not barbecue. You know, and it's not, not that it's not barbecue, but it's just not the way we eat it. You know, like in St. Louis, it's a dry rub or this city, it's a wet rub. You know, it's, it's like, we all have our own definitions and it's all barbecue, but we think our way is the right way. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's quite profound, actually. And it uses yes. an example that everybody can uh, grasp. And if they're vegetarian, then they're just going to have to use a tofu example instead. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. So, you know, we're getting close to the end of the interview already. I wish we could go on for another two hours. I have so many questions to ask you. But, you know, when you're working with somebody, you're trying to get a corporate client and you want to give them some tips about how to work effectively with you and what would be the best way for you and them to interact. What would you say? I talked about this, I think, in the temperament, like I'm almost all D. So just give me the bottom line. Now, when I'm relaying information back to you, if you want more detail and more of the process, I'm happy to communicate that way to you. But when you're communicating to me, really just give me the bottom line. I don't need the lead in. I don't need the fluff. I really just want to get straight to it. And so anyone that is communicating with me, that will be my request. Just get straight to it. Perfect. Is there anything else that you'd like to say? Well, you know, I think as leaders, especially leaders that are working inside of someone else's organization, 
we always feel like we have to have all the answers. But what happens when you really don't? So the thing that I would say, you know, since this is a leadership conversation is don't stay stuck, like seek the answers. It's okay not to have all of the answers. You know, there's so many experts and mentors and programs and books out there that can pretty much answer almost any challenge that you could possibly come into. So I would just say, you know, if you're having a difficult time as it pertains to culture, if you're having a difficult time as it pertains to leadership or anything that is affecting your life, especially professionally, I would just say, don't stay stuck. Seek out the answers and be willing to recognize that you don't have to have all the answers. I think in corporate America, especially, we're conditioned, especially the higher we go up, that we have to have all the answers. And then we feel like, well, what what do I do when we don't? So yeah, don't stay stuck. Very good advice. Excellent advice. So this is your spot to uh, promote anything that you would like to promote, something you would like to draw people's attention to. And of course, we'll put everything in the show notes and links. So just uh, what would you like to promote? So we've talked a little bit about shifting Um, at the time that we're recording this conversation. We're in a global pandemic. And so a lot of people have had to pivot. A lot of people have had to shift. But sometimes I think disruptions like burnout and overwhelm and things of that nature come into our lives to get our attention. And, you know, we find ourselves like, well, wait a minute, everything that used to work is no longer working. You know, the bottom line is something is off and we just don't know what or why. And so if that is you, if you're hearing me say that and you're like, oh yeah, that's me. I have an actual free training. It's about a 40 minute training. It's completely free and it always will be. And it's called Conquer Burnout and Get Unstuck Now. The six shifts to take back your enthusiasm and step into another dimension of success. And so if you want to view that training, you can get that at thepoweroftheshift.com. That's the poweroftheshift.com. And it'll really help you to identify some of the signs that you may need to shift. You probably already know them. It'll go into, you know, what can get in the way of shifting, how you shift successfully. As a leader, I think that probably has already been a time that you find yourself in a shifting disruptive situation. And if it hasn't, that resource, I hope, will always be there. So if you're listening to this interview and you haven't encountered that and down the line you do, please go to thepowerofthesshift.com and listen to that free training. I definitely know that it will help you to increase your burnout and get your enthusiasm back. Uh, Do you mean decrease your burnout? Did I say increase it? There you go. It will definitely help you to decrease your burnout. (laughs) Thank you for catching that. Great. Well, thank you so much for spending the time and for explaining all these things and giving the Culture and Leadership Connections podcast listeners your take on the questions because it was very interesting to listen to. Thank you, Marie, so much for having me. I appreciate it. Shana Rattler has been crossing cultures and forging friendships since she was a baby. Born into a biracial family, Shana learned to negotiate with people and quickly honed her entrepreneurial abilities, leading to a wildly successful business at only age 28. Responding to what she felt was a divine call, Shana restarted her business with a focus on asking what God wanted for her life. From this grew a meaningful profession of coaching high-end business executives who feel stuck and purposeless. She assists others to access new dimensions of success by examining their beliefs and focusing on their values. I appreciated Shana's warm and natural personality, her enthusiasm, straightforwardness, and sense of humor. 
If you too love Shana's story, please share it with a friend and help us grow our culture and leadership connections community. Thank you for listening. And may culture and leadership connections continue to guide and inspire your day. This podcast would not be possible without the expertise of our Culture and Leadership Connections production team. A big thank you and shout out to Mike Kurlander for audio production and editing. To Malvika Kathpal for the show notes. Bernadette Guadiz for online web and social media management and promotions. Celine Bayogo for design. And Kirsten Hoyer for website and branding. Thank you so much. Hey, Culture and Leadership Connections podcast listeners. Do you love these insightful and moving interviews published twice monthly for your listening pleasure? You may not know that it costs between $300 and $500 per month to pay for our podcast episodes. Shocking, but true. Well, now you can help support this podcast by showing your love with a little skin in the game real money on the Patreon website. For as little as $5 or as much as $50 a month, you can contribute to keep culture and leadership connections alive and healthy. Your donation is invaluable in helping us connect the hearts and minds of people across cultures and professions for happier and more humane workplaces. I know you will call on your inner generosity, knowing that your contribution is a practical demonstration of love and support. Check out the patreon.com slash culture and leadership connections page to see what subscription level feels right for you and find out about the special loyalty perks at each patron level. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash culture and leadership connections. Thank you for your generosity.